It is incredibly fitting this morning for God's people to raise their voices rejoicing in Him. In Psalm 16, which will be our text this morning, you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. We're going to be talking about why we do what we just did and why we should continue to do what we just did with hearts that are in a particular state. So turn to Psalm 16. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we want to welcome you. We're really glad you're here. It's a crazy privilege to worship with new people week in and week out. As well, we want to invite you to this little visitor kiosk right over here uh, where someone will be there to greet you with information so you can know how to get plugged in around here and uh, figure out if, if God's leading you here for a church home. And if not here, we're continuing to pray that God would help you to find a church home as a professing believer. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, you are incredibly good to us. It is so fitting for us this morning to sing um, that there is, there is no solid foundation. There is no sure footing outside of you. And so, Lord, we, we praise you this morning, and I, I pray that we would continue to praise you this morning as we work through Psalm 16. As we do every Sunday when we gather, we want to also pray for another local church, Lord. We pray for Clark Street Christian Church and for Reverend uh, Wilbert Gunn. Lord, I pray that you would bless them this morning. I pray that as they gather, that they would really be enjoying you, that Reverend Gunn would be preaching from the word, and that people would be enjoying your word, that there would be rejoicing, that there would be wholeheartedness. I pray that you would bless that church abundantly. We also continue to pray that you would destroy any, any spirit of competition that exists between all the local churches in Greenville. I'm so thankful that you have called us to, to the same faith. And I pray that we would rejoice in that and, and see each other as teammates in that. Lord, this morning, we need you desperately. Uh, we can't understand this psalm. We can't understand David's emotions. We can't be brought in to sing along if not for a work done our, on our hearts outside of us by you. Um, I am insufficient to do justice to the verses that we are considering this morning. And it is completely in your hands. You are great. You are greatly to be praised, and I pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds as we enter into this time in the Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 16, verse 9 is where we'll be. Over the last five weeks, uh, we've been walking with the psalmist through a desperate trial that eventually led to the writing of this psalm. So the psalm that we're reading is a desperate trial that happened to David which eventually led to him writing this song. And when we read each of the Psalms, what we're finding are encounters that God's people have had with him, and then their emotional, heartfelt, deep responses to God in the song. If you haven't been with us over these five weeks, there's a little groundwork that you need to know. The Psalms actually invite us in to feel what the psalmist feels and to see if, in fact, their song can be our song. If it's one that we would download and purchase were it on iTunes, would we say, yeah, I like that. I want to sing along. Like any good song, are we wrapped up in it? And are we led by our hearts to sing along? It's something we have to consider as we continue this morning. So today we're going to be focusing on verse 9. In your bulletin it says it was originally verses 9 through 10. But it didn't play out that week. Sometimes we finish the bulletins before we finish the sermon around here. And so it's just verse 9 this morning. And I actually want you to change the title too. How's that? How's that for a start? Here's wrong verses, wrong title. 
Uh, the title, it, it was Reasons to Sing, and it really should be more fittingly as, we, as I work through the sermon, it's Reasons to Rejoice. And, and we'll make sure we put that online as well, Reasons to Rejoice. So let's look at Psalm 16, verse 9. It says this, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. It's our entire focus this morning. I'm going to read that again. It's short. There's three clear points, and I want us to really, with our hearts and our minds, dig into what is happening in this moment of high praise. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. This is the apex moment of this beautiful psalm, and I want us to get it this morning. Howard Hendricks has a wonderful book called Living by the Book. Anytime that I have a chance to recommend it, I do so. I've been recommending this book from the first time I read it nearly 15 years ago. It's one of the most helpful resources I've ever found for those who are wanting to learn how to study the Bible, and in it he has lots and lots of extremely helpful practical tips for studying the word. And one of those tips is this. If you've been here for a while, you already know what I'm about to say. If you're new, listen to it and take it to heart. One of the tips that he gives us is anytime you see therefore in scripture, ask what is the therefore, therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? See, it's catchy. See, it's already in your head. Write it in your notes. What's the therefore, therefore? It's a moment of turn. Something has happened to build up to this point. And the point that's about to be made in this psalm and any other time that word is used, is referring to something that's happened in the previous verses. Some examples. In the book of Romans, the 12th chapter begins with a therefore that's actually referring to the previous 11 chapters. So some of these therefores can be really big moments. So in Romans, 11 chapters leads up to chapter 12. Therefore, we do this. So in Romans, if you were to read chapter 12 by itself, it's really good. But if you read it in light of verses 1 through 11, it changes your life. It gives you another worldly perspective. And it is incredibly edifying. So for us today, these verses 9 through 11, which is where we'll be as we finish the psalm today, just in verse 9, it's really an incredible verse if you just read it by itself. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. If you just read it by itself, it's really good. But if we really do the work of reading it, in light of verses 1 through 8, I believe it to be life-changing. So we have to ask this question, what leads up to this therefore? What leads up to this apex moment of the song where the psalmist has a glad heart that causes his whole being to rejoice? We see the psalmist not just saying, okay, I'll sing along. The worship guy's leading. There's the songs. I try some solid rock, I stand on leather ground. <laughs> Oh, that reminds me of another song. No, the psalmist is completely engaged. His whole being rejoices. What leads up to this apex moment? But before we even talk about that apex, high-level moment of high praise, we have to talk about the little moments that lead up to it. Without those little moments, there would, in fact, be no moment of high praise. Our, mo our main focus this morning is the is the high praise moment, but we have to make sure we get there rightly. So I encourage you to do the work this morning in getting there rightly. So let's take a few minutes, going back to verse 1, 
to see what God has done and how the psalmist has responded. God has done something, said something, revealed something, communicated something, and David has responded, and it's led him to this moment of a glad heart and high praise. So what is it? Well, in the first verse, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The reality of God that exists in this verse is this. And go ahead and put the slides up. Go ahead and go to that first, that next one. Next one. God preserves us and is a refuge for us. That's a reality that we wouldn't know if God hadn't revealed it to us. So what does David do leading up to this moment of high praise? One of the first things he does is he calls out to God for preservation. Preserve me, O God, in this desperate moment. And he seeks refuge in God. Why? Because God tells him, I am your refuge. So he cries out to God. And he seeks refuge. And this is that moment of desperation. Remember as we're going through the Psalms, there's a pattern that we hit over and over again. Desperation, dependence, deliverance. Desperation, dependence, and deliverance. This is that moment of desperation. So that's the first little moment that leads up to this moment of high praise. Second is God lets us know that he gives us the only good that we have. And so David responds by, by ascribing that to God and saying, I actually have no good apart from you. That's part of his journey to this moment of high praise. God gives us the only good that we have, so David acknowledges that to the Lord. Number three, God encourages us to direct that good toward his people because our good can't even make it to him, as we learned in those first few verses. The saints, as he refers to them. So David leans into the church as he leans into God. That's number three. Number four, God warns us not to seek comfort and relief in worldly ways. So what does David do? David says, I take that warning from God and I refuse worldliness. I refuse to turn to the ways of the world, to the ways of the flesh for comfort and for any sense of, of steadiness that it might feel from the world. Number five, God offers himself as our portion and our cup, giving us just what we need when we need it. Are you having a hard time keeping up? Well, just wait till the slide's over and take a picture of it with your phone. It's very simple. Just And then you'll, you don't even have to write it. God offers himself as our portion and our cup, so David receives God in such a way. He says, I receive God as my portion. I receive God as my cup. Number six God's providential hand has us where he has us for a reason. You live where you live because of God's providential hand. You have the job you have, the marriage you have, the children you have, because God's providential hand is a real thing. And so what does David do? Leading up, one of these little moments leading up to this apex of praise, David acknowledges that his place in life is pleasant because of God's providential hand. Number seven, God promises an eternal inheritance. So David anticipates the eternal inheritance. He knows it's out there, so what does he do? He anticipates it. Number eight, God promises to be present with us. So what does David do? He delights in God's presence. Number nine, God gives us counsel when he is with us, so David delights in God's counsel. Number 10, God's counsel gives us stability when we apply it to our lives. So what does David do in that little moment leading up to this moment of apex praise? David delights in that stability that comes from applying God's counsel. Now, therefore... 
Therefore, my heart is glad. You might be thinking, oh my gosh, Scott, this is going to be a five-hour sermon. You haven't even gotten to the main text, and you have ten bullet points on the screen. Why all the focus on what's leading up to the therefore? And I think this is the answer. For the psalmist, a glad heart was the result of hard work in many little moments. Why all this? Why do we have to make sure we get that before we get to this glad heart moment of high praise? For the psalmist, a glad heart was the result of hard work. It took faithful movement responding to God's promises for that glad heart to show up in verse 9. The psalmist had to work through at least 10 things from God and then respond to all of them faithfully, even though maybe clumsily at times. This is the definition of faith, trusting God's promises and God's warnings and God's instructions. That's what faith is. When we talk about faith, sometimes we use these sort of ethereal terms. Yeah, I've got faith. What does that mean? It means I believe what God says. And I don't just believe it, I do it. I'm not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And here the psalmist does that hard work of faith. And this could have taken days, months, maybe even years. So in his desperation, he goes to God. He lays hold of the truth. He works out his salvation with fear and trembling. That might be language that's more familiar. And in time, desperation, what we see, desperation gives way to dependence. And as he grew in dependence upon God, he experienced deliverance from the thing with which he needed to be sustained through. And then deliverance, what we found last week, makes way for delight. And it's in delighting in God that the psalmist looks into his soul and says, Therefore, my heart is glad. So now we reach the apex of the psalm. My heart is glad. First, a glad heart. The inward disposition of the soul of the psalmist after having faithfully gone through all that he has gone through is just an inward disposition of gladness. His heart is happy. It's not, it's not like a super complicated phrase that has hidden meanings that if you dig into the original language, you'll find something that you didn't know was there like it is the case sometimes. He just has a happy heart. Think about moments where you've had a happy heart, like maybe the birth of your children or an experience with, with friends where you're just like, oh my goodness, my heart is happy right now. My mom always says when we're together at Christmas, she'll just have this moment, and usually it's my dad, the crier, who'll like make it even more emotional, right? But my, my mom says, oh, my heart is full, and then my dad's like, my heart is so full. And he just it's that moment where your heart is happy because things are as you would want them to be. And so here the psalmist has a happy heart. The original language indicates that his heart isn't just passively happy, but the original language indicates his heart has been given joy. It's been given gladness. It has been pleased, and we would say it has been done, all of those things, by God. And the result of this glad heart, it's not just a heart that stays there. It's not just, yeah, I got a happy heart. I got a happy heart, and that's, yeah, I got a happy heart. No, 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 no. It does something. The result of the glad heart is rejoicing. The psalmist is responding to what God has done, and nothing is more natural for a glad heart than to rejoice. Nothing 
in, in creation, as God has put this thing together and wired you the way that he has wired you, nothing is more pure and nothing makes more sense and nothing is more natural than a glad heart to rejoice in the one who has made it glad. The word here indicates exulting or crying out, exult. We, we exult in these moments. And that's, a, that's another churchy word, right? Like, what does that mean? Is that, how is exult, E-X-U-L-T, any different than like, I sang the song. How is it different? And here's how it's different. The indication of exult here is this. To exult in something is to show jubilation or elation. Jubilation or elation. It sounds like one of those kids' cartoons where everybody's jubilant and there's a song. You know, like that's what that sounds like. But it's deep. It's not shallow. It's this wholehearted response of jubilation and elation, especially as the result of success. Or as we might say in this verse, especially as the result of faith. And you just have that moment where you just do, yes, sort of the quiet fist pump. Maybe it's a loud fist pump. You're like, yes, we got it done. I ran a half marathon with my little brother. And at about mile nine, we were both wondering if the actual half marathon was going to happen. And when we got done, I just remember like, dude, us two fat guys, we did it. We got 13.1. Not point zero point one, And there was just that moment just that, yes, we did it. We worked on it. We trained. It happened. There's this picture here. Exulting is to show jubilation or relation as a result of success. Or as we might say here, the result of faith. The hard work of faith in those little moments. So the psalmist now cries out, not only with a song, but it says, I rejoice. What does it say? Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My whole being. Being rejoices. This is true worship. The text here indicates that through the phrase whole being, a rejoicing that is completely unique to, to a human being's ability as one created in God's image. This, this word here can't be used of any animal, any tree, any rock. This whole being phrase is indicative only of those who were created by God in his image. Some translations say, my tongue rejoices, which is actually unique to the human experience as well. Pulling all this together, what we see here is this unique ability for human beings to articulate with words an expression of wholehearted joy in God. That's where the psalmist is. He's saying, man, I am a human being created in the image of God. I got a tongue. I can say words. My dog can't say words. My trees can't say words. I can say words. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take that. I'm going to take this experience. And what I'm going to do is my whole being is going to rejoice. And with everything that's in me, I want to express with words and with my life the joy that I have in my Lord. In church, this is our goal. We want to be these kinds of people. And we want to see more people come to God and rejoice in a like manner. This design by God for human beings to rejoice in him in a way completely unique to all of creation. With words, with the glory of image bearers, with our whole being, is the very way in which the message of God moves forward. We don't simply want converts. We want people who encounter God and are filled with delight. That's why we preach verse by verse. That's why we stand firmly on truth. That's why we don't stray from Christ. And the reality is we can help other people as the psalmist shows here, to do this when we rejoice with our words and with our entire beings. You know, I mentioned Romans 12 earlier, and I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. This is one of two places that I'll have you turn this morning. This whole 
hearted, entire being worship. It's always good when you see it somewhere to see if you see it somewhere else. And Romans 12 is very, very similar to Psalm 16. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, say this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what is your spiritual worship? Worship? That's hard to say, isn't it? What is your spiritual worship when you present your entire body, your entire being as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? And he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world. It sounds like Psalm 16. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I encourage you this week to spend some time thinking through Romans 12. But for now, let's consider three things that these two sets of verses have in common in Psalm 16 and Romans 12. First, worship is not limited to song. It certainly includes song, and it should include a wholehearted song. But true worship happens when we present our bodies, our entire beings to God. As well, worship includes testing. For it's only by testing that we can discern the will of God. The psalmist experienced this through the desperate situation that required God's preservation third thing we see in both of them is that it takes time. It really takes time. We're transformed by the renewal of our minds. This means that Paul, like the psalmist, believed that the kind of change that brings us from desperation to rejoicing happens largely as our minds are being renewed, which simply takes time. Have you ever really tried to change someone's mind when they're really convinced? You ever try to change your children's mind when they're really convinced? It can be frustrating because it doesn't happen quickly. If that's the case between human beings, how much more so between creator and created beings? We have to leave room for the fact that it takes time for us and our minds to be transformed through a process of renewal to line up with our creator who is perfect in every way. Turn back to Psalm 16. Turn back to Psalm 16. We're going to look at the very last part of the verse and then move on to a couple points of application. He said in verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and then he says, My flesh also dwells secure. My flesh also dwells secure. This is actually directly connected to the next verse. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shale. So what we are again seeing here is the psalmist's eternal perspective. The psalmist has an eternal perspective. His heart is glad. His entire being rejoices with words that articulate the greatness of God. And he has a confidence here. It's an interesting confidence that his flesh and his soul will dwell secure eternally. The psalmist has this picture is he has this eternal perspective. What he sees is eternal security. So for the psalmist, he has learned through this temporary trial about the goodness of God towards his people eternally, which tells us that one of the aims of this psalm is to cultivate the hope of everlasting glory for those who are faithful. When we read this, it should cultivate inside of you a hopefulness that eternity will be perfect. Our flesh, our soul will dwell secure for some reason, 
the hope of everlasting glory is being cultivated in your soul when you're faithful. Since the beginning, eternity has been put into the heart of man. We should have an eternal perspective, but sometimes we don't go down that road to think about it. Eternity has been put into the heart of man, and for some, even maybe for some of us sitting here this morning, they look into eternity, and they see darkness, and they see gloom, and they see emptiness. Bertrand Russell, one of the leading atheists upon his deathbed, said, this is final words on planet Earth for for this atheist, Bertrand Russell. He said, there is darkness within, and now there is darkness without. That is the saddest thing I've ever heard. There is darkness within, and now there is darkness without. This is the picture of the hopelessness that accompanies godlessness. But the psalmist, rather than having a darkness within when he considers those final moments of his life, has a gladness within. And what we see this morning is it's a gladness that comes from the sometimes hard work of trusting God which leads to our application points. The first application point is this. Do you expect a glad heart with little work? It's a hard question, and I think it's one we have to answer given what we've seen in the psalm this morning. Do you expect a glad heart with little work? Can I just, full disclosure, sometimes I do. Sometimes I struggle with that. Like, man, I'm in ministry. I get, my job is to share the greatest hope that the world has ever seen. How is there ever a moment where my heart isn't glad? But sometimes it happens because I expect a glad heart with little work. So do you expect a glad heart with little work? See, there's this biblical reality that says, just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that it is a certain way. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that it is a certain way. This simply means that you can't always trust your emotions. My heart doesn't feel glad. Okay, is that, do you want to stay there? Do you want to stay in that spot? Do you want to stay in that spot of saying, I'm just going to trust the emotion, my heart doesn't feel glad? Or do you want to say, maybe just because it is that way doesn't mean that, that it has to be that way? See, some of us have emotions that we don't even understand. Does anyone have some of those emotions where you're like, man, I really hate that I feel that way, but I feel that way, and I don't always fully know why I feel that way. Some of us have emotions that we don't even understand And if you can't understand them, you certainly can't trust them. You can't take an emotion that you don't understand and say, yep, hanging my hat right there. I feel, uh, I don't even have a word for how I feel. I just feel it, and I'm going to stay there. We have emotions we don't understand, and when we have emotions we don't understand, we certainly can't trust such emotions. So sometimes as Christians, the reality is we're just not feeling it, right? Sometimes we're just not feeling it. You read with the psalmist. You say, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. And you know you should say it with this voice that's excited, but your heart is saying, it's been a hard week, a hard day, a hard year. Sometimes as Christians, we're just not feeling it. So when it comes time to gather and sing, we can mail it in. When Clint or the band gets up here to strike up the time of praise and this call into worship, there's no fire in our belly that makes us want to shout for joy and rejoice continually. We can be distracted and we can be unfocused on God if we think that we can have glad hearts with little work. We're so distracted and unfocused that it seems silly to raise our hands or get excited about rejoicing. And if this seems silly, rejoicing with my entire being whenever I have the opportunity at work in a meeting will seem downright ridiculous. 
If that's where you are this morning, if your heart is sad, broken, burdened, confused, and you don't feel like rejoicing, I think that the psalmist is lovingly saying, it's time to get to work. God is great and greatly to be praised. There is never a moment where that is less true than the moment before or the moment after. He is always worthy of praise. He's always worthy of that rejoicing that should flow out of a glad heart because of what he has done. So the psalmist might ask you this. If you're in that spot this morning, the psalmist might ask you these these few questions. Have you cried out to God in your desperation yet? Gosh, some of us can be so stubborn. And we just, I'll take care of it. I'll get through it. And so the psalmist might ask, if you're in that spot, have you actually, preserve me, God? Have you had that moment where you've cried out to him? Are you leaning on your own understanding and wisdom? Are you leaning into God and his people? Are you serving others? When you're taking that good that God has given you and and directing it towards the saints, you're serving others. Isaiah 58 actually has a beautiful reality, and I encourage you to go read it, but it says, when you pour yourself out for the afflicted, your your gloom can turn to the noonday. Your darkness can turn to light. Your sad heart can turn into a glad heart through the act of serving other people. What What a gracious, wise God to give us such a way to come out of the funk that we sometimes find ourselves in. What should you do? Get to work. Cry out. Go serve somebody. Go love somebody. If you're in a terrible mood, make dinner for somebody. The psalmist might ask, are you seeing God's providential hand on your life? Or do you just think, I live in crummy Greenville, and I live in this falling apart house, in this broken marriage with these unhealthy children that won't listen to me ever, because it's all a mistake. Or do you believe in the providential hand of God to have you where he has you? Do you delight in his presence? Are you genuinely depending on God for anything? Do you delight in and heed his counsel? Do you enjoy and marvel at the stability of your life when you actually apply his counsel? If you expect a glad heart with little work, I think that David might be telling us that's not going to work for you and we need to get to work. The second application point is this. Very simple. Do you rejoice? I mean, that's the main thing happening in this verse. Therefore, my whole being rejoices. Do you rejoice? At work, in meetings, in conversations, with friends, with strangers, do you rejoice in the goodness of God? Do you figure out ways to weave that into your conversation because your glad heart cannot help but to do so? Some of us view the Christian life as one of very little rejoicing. We may think that we suffer, we serve, and there's never really a check in the block. There's never really in the Christian life, maybe for some of us, that moment of success where you've worked up to something and check in the block, success, yes, it's done. No, it's not done. It can feel a little futile to us sometimes. There's always a new trial to face. There's always a new problem. There's always another curveball. And if we're not careful, Christians can become this pessimistic people who generally think that life stinks until Jesus comes back, and then and only then can we rejoice. You might be thinking, that's silly, Scott, come on. But I would ask, do you ever struggle with that? 
That's what we do when we're going to the word of truth. We're saying, when, when do I struggle with this? Why do I struggle with this? How do I struggle with this? Do I believe that lie sometimes that it's going to stink till Jesus comes back? And then and only then can we rejoice. I confess that I struggle with that in ministry sometimes. Again, the happiest message that the world has ever seen. And there are times on a Tuesday where I just sit there and I say, it's just never done. There's no stopping point. There's no check in the block. Personally, I actually have other work that I've done over the years, just security work. And, and I, sometimes I do it incredibly selfishly. Because what I like sometimes um, with, as, as a man with hands that need, I need to accomplish a task, like a tangible task, I really like sometimes to be able to, um, to take an identifiable task that needs to get done, take the steps to finish it, and then the task is done, and there's a sense of accomplishment, and the day's over. Sometimes I, I like those moments. Y'all probably struggle with these things in your own ways in, in the work that you do, but sometimes I do that because I, it's just, I, I like the feeling of something being done. There's a great sense of accomplishment. I checked the block. Let's rejoice. But the Christian life, the Christian life doesn't always feel that way. And I just wonder if it wouldn't do us some good to do some more rejoicing. In the little moments. Like, we got through Tuesday <laughs> with my faith still intact. Let's rejoice. Family, let's rejoice. Those little moments. I didn't yell at my children in a moment where I probably would normally yell at my children. Let's rejoice. With our whole being, let's thank God for that good that I had because I know it came from him. For that patience that I had. For any of the fruit of the spirit that I exhibited in that moment. Let's rejoice in a good God who, who saves us from our flesh and our futility. Let's rejoice in those moments. We had a somewhat productive time in the Word as a family. Even with all of the, the sounds and the distractions and the crying and the not listening and the random answers to questions that I didn't actually ask, it was something. Let's rejoice. I didn't choke any coworkers today. Let's rejoice. It's a biblical principle that if you don't feel like singing, sing until you do. That's a biblical truth. If you don't feel like singing, sing until you do. If you're more mindful of God's goodness towards us every day, rejoicing more, rejoicing in those moments, won't feel contrived. If you're mindful of that goodness that he gives us and that every piece of fruit that you produce is a gift in the spirit, if, you, if you're mindful of that every single day more so than you are of your problems, that rejoicing more often won't feel contrived or fake or forced. It's more fitting than complaining and vexing and fretting and settling into bitterness and entitlement. Paul Tripp in his, um, in his uh, marriage counseling series that he does, he reminds us that our lives, this is a really important point, he reminds us that our lives are not made up of big moments, but rather many little moments. And he says that if God is not the God of your life in those little moments, he's not the God of your life at all. I think if you take that in conjunction with what we've heard from the psalm, we can conclude that if, if he is God, in those small moments, in those small, seemingly mundane moments in the middle of the week, 
you will find yourself with many opportunities where you will find cause to rejoice with your whole being. If you're just looking for those mountaintop big things, they're not, they don't happen very often, guys. That's not the way our lives work. But if, you can, if he's the God of your life and all of those little moments, all the ten little moments that I have behind me that led up to the therefore, you'll find lots of moments with glad hearts rejoicing in a God who's completely worthy of praise. The third application point is this. Do you believe that your flesh and soul will dwell secure forever? Do you believe that your flesh and your soul will dwell securely forever? And I would, I would ask, when's the last time you thought about that? When's the last time you sat and said, my soul will dwell securely forever? Some of us here today may have never spent much time thinking about the eternal state of our souls. You may be wondering right now what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus and why that matters to the eternal state of our souls. Some of us sitting here may have thought about the state of our souls back when we were eight years old and we came to Jesus and we didn't want to go to hell and we didn't want to spend eternity away from him and we gave our lives to him and we said, you're the Lord of my life. And from that moment, we may have spent little time thinking about the state of our souls eternally, but the psalmist makes it part of a psalm seems the psalmist urges us to think about the eternal state of our souls, even if we're saved, and especially if we're not. The psalmist says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The psalmist knows and even expresses in other psalms that he will one day die and his body will go into the grave. And we know for a fact on the other side of history here, we can look back and read the books and David died. His body went into a grave So what is David talking about? How is it that he, as God's chosen Holy One, will not see corruption? That his body will not see corruption? That his soul will remain intact? This psalm is intentionally leading us to cultivate some hope of everlasting joy, where if we are singing along, we too believe that somehow, in some way, our bodies and our souls will be spared from eternal corruption and blessed with eternal life. So the question for us this morning as we end is very gospel. How? How does that work? How could that possibly happen that David in this psalm so firmly believes in not just temporary preservation? Remember verse 1, preserve me. He he cries out for that temporary preservation, but now we see in verse 9, he believes in an eternal preservation preservation. And I think an answer can be found in Acts 2. This is the last place I'll ask you to turn this morning. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. It's right after the book of Romans where we were earlier, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, or right before the book of Romans. My Bible has it before the book of Romans. I hope yours does. Right after. Acts chapter 2. See if you hear anything familiar in Peter's words here at Pentecost, preaching the Pentecost sermon, Peter says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my whole being rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter directly quotes David. Peter, the rock on whom God's church would be built, directly quotes David in explaining how one's soul is preserved from seeing corruption. And as we prepare to take the supper, consider what he says in the next verses. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. He's saying he said these things, but we can go visit his tomb. So how's that, how's that work? How is his soul and his flesh not abandoned? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he, Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now then, they heard when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It is this Jesus who did not see corruption. It is this Jesus whose soul was not abandoned. And somehow in Jesus, you're telling us that our souls can receive the same thing and we will not be abandoned to Sheol. And they hear that message and they hear him quoting the psalm and they hear him saying what David really meant. And he says, what? they say, what should we do? And David says this, or Peter says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you are here this morning and you have done that, you are among the most blessed people to walk the face of the earth and will be the most blessed for all of eternity. If you believe that Jesus has done what Peter has just communicated and what the psalmist anticipated, then as we take the supper, the supper's for you, and we want you to take it with gladness and sureness of your eternal security. It's fitting for you to first examine yourselves and make sure you are trusting Jesus, and then to take the supper with a glad heart like the psalmist. But I would also encourage you, if you're still unsure, or if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus, we encourage you not to take the supper, but rather, this morning, while we're distributing the elements, to really take the time to think on what you have heard from God's word, and if you feel led, to cry out to God for faith in Jesus. Let's pray, and we'll distribute the elements. Lord, we are thankful for our time this morning. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that we can have this eternal perspective that is full of sureness and stability, knowing the condition of our souls is sealed in Jesus. Lord, I pray that as the psalmist put his faith in you and, and heard what you said and laid hold of it through faith, I pray that in Christ we would do the same thing. We would hear this reality of a Jesus 
who saves us from eternal separation from you because of our sins. And that we would repent of those sins. And that we would lay hold of Christ as he lays hold of us. And that we would move in faithfulness in our short times here on earth. You are great and greatly to be praised. And as we take this supper, my hope is that our hearts are glad and we are genuinely rejoicing in you, knowing that our flesh and our soul are secure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.